The Cell Phone Junkie Podcast, episode 581 for July 30th, 2017. The TSA announces new screening procedures for carry-on electronics. Motorola announces the Z2 Force and the end of Adobe Flash. My name is Mickey Papillon. And I'm Joey Kappas. Brought to you each week by the Cell Phone Junkie podcast application. Available now for Android, iOS, and Windows Phone 8 for $1.99. Kicking off the news, the United States Transportation Security Administration, or TSA, on Wednesday announced stronger screening procedures for carry-on electronics requiring all devices larger than a phone to be placed in bins for x-ray screening when going through standard screening lanes. The TSA already has required laptops to be removed from carry-on bags and placed in a separate bin with nothing above or below them, and it appears that this will now expand to devices like iPads and portable gaming consoles. According to the TSA, extensive testing and successful pilot programs have been going on at 10 airports, which has led the administration to expand the measure to all U.S. airports during the weeks and months ahead. The way to get around the new screening measures? TSA Pre. Customers who are enrolled in the TSA Pre program and use TSA Pre lanes will not need to remove their laptops or any other electronic devices from their bags. And of course, uh, in this past uh, two weeks, they started advanced screening in a bunch of other countries as well, including uh, any device bigger than a phone. And of course, these uh, the, the reason they're doing this is there there have been a lot of specific threats uh, with devices that are concealing, uh, you know, electronics that are concealing explosive devices. So that's why they're doing this. And it's unfortunate for those that travel often and have uh, made accommodation to do things like not carry laptops and travel with iPads because now you're going to have to have one more thing to deal with as you go through the screening lanes. And that's kind of a bummer. So uh, but either way, obviously, it's for the safety of all travelers. And so we'll uh, see how long this lasts and how far it goes and what to what extent uh, we are seeing these uh, measures in place. But either way, it's uh, not everywhere yet, but it will be rolled out to pretty much every airport around the country very soon. The USB 3.0 Promoter Group this week released the spec for USB 3.2. This provides the potential to boost speeds through cables and specifically taking advantage of the multi-lane operation that's been built into existing USB Type-C cables. Now, as long as both devices support USB 3.2 end users should see data transfer speeds double, the promoter group says the spec will allow for up to two lanes of 5 gigabits per second or two lanes of 10 gigabits per second operation. The group expects to release the final version of the spec in September with device support in 2018. In May, Apple submitted an application for an experimental license to test wireless technology on millimeter wave spectrum bands. The wave bands provide higher bandwidth and throughput at up to 10 gigabits per second, but limited to line of sight, and that may cause problems, of course, in dense urban areas. Apple's intention is to transmit from two fixed-point locations at Apple-controlled facilities in Cupertino and nearby Milpitas, California. Apple said it anticipates that it will uh, have this condu- uh, conduct this experiment uh, for a period of not to exceed 12 months using the 28 and 39 gigahertz bands, which are among those opened up by the FCC for the purpose of next-generation 5G broadband. Of course, not entirely clear on why Apple is planning to test this millimeter wave performance, but it will join Google, Facebook, and several of the U.S. cellular carriers who are testing 5G networks in preparation to deploy the next generation technology in the coming years. 
T-Mobile Monday said it is extending the same scam stopping tools to its postpaid its postpaid customers have been using since April to its prepaid Metro PCS customers starting in late July. T-Mobile introduced the network-based tool earlier this year to help identify and block potential scam calls. T-Mobile uses it to analyze every call that reaches the T-Mobile network against a global database of known scammers. If the number matches that of a scammer, T-Mobile will identify the call as a potential scam when it rings through to the subscriber's phone. The customer can then choose to ignore the call. The feature is called Scam ID and will be activated for all MetroPCS customers automatically. Uh, T-Mobile is also offering the ability for MetroPCS customers to block scam calls entirely. Subscribing to the Scam Block tool will prevent these calls from ringing through to phones at all. T-Mobile says it's learned a lot about scammers since it started activating this tool. For example, many scam calls happen during regular business hours from 8 a.m. till 5 p.m. T-Mobile updates its database of known and suspected scammers constantly and says alerting customers to scam calls helps prevent fraud. Both Scam ID and Scam Block are free, and T-Mobile will originally uh, have this uh, or had originally put out the service to all of its postpaid customers and said that MetroPCS would be getting the service upgraded in the spring. Of course, it's now happening in the summer. In device news, Foxconn on Wednesday said it will build a manufacturing facility in Wisconsin where it will make LCD panels and employ 3,000 people. The company had announced that it was contemplating investing about $10 billion in the U.S., This news came out of the White House, and they said that the facility will have approximately 20,000 square feet and eventually employ up to 13,000 people. But Foxconn is, of course, mainly known for manufacturing of the iPhone screens for Apple. uh, And although the customer electronics, uh, another consumer electronics customer, such as Sharp, uh, the first uh, distribution um, of the of screens out of its facility in Wisconsin will be made for sharp LCD panels. Uh, Foxconn is exploring other similar investments in Illinois, Indiana, and Michigan. OnePlus this week said the high-end variant of its OnePlus 5 smartphone is more widely available now to U.S. buyers. Specifically, it's available in midnight black with 8 gigs of RAM and 128 gigs of storage and will ship now as soon as a customer places an order. Uh, The high-end model costs $539. It's got a 5.5-inch HD screen, Snapdragon 835 processor, dual cameras, 3,000 mAh battery with rapid charging, and support for worldwide LTE bands. It ships with Oxygen OS based on Android 7 Nougat. Google CEO Sundar Pichai said the company's handset partners now have Daydream-compatible devices in the pipeline. A total of 11 will be available, he says, by the end of the year. At the moment, only four phones are able to use Google's virtual reality handsets or headsets, including the Pixel line, the ZTE Axon 7, the Motorola Z, and the Huawei Mate 9. No word on what those 11 devices may be. The Daydream has certain hardware requirements, particularly where the display is concerned. It must be between 4.7 and 6 inches, have 60 hertz or greater refresh rate with low persistence mode, and must have at least full HD resolution, quad HD preferred. Companies including Motorola, Samsung, Sony, Huawei, and LG all have major device announcements over the next two months, so it is possible these handsets will be among those to support Google Daydream. Motorola Tuesday announcing one of those new devices, the Moto Z2 Force. This is its flagship handset for 2017. Carries over the Shatter Shield, nearly unbreakable display from last year's device. A relatively slim handset with a metal chassis and compatible with Motorola's system of Moto Mods. 
It's got a 5.5-inch display, quad resolution, quad HD resolution, that is. It's powered by a Snapdragon 835 processor, 4 gigs of RAM, 64 gigs of storage. A new dual camera area includes two sensors and lenses in the single raised module with a two-tone flash. The cameras capture 12-megapixel images and allow for a true black-and-white photography as well as selective focus for blurred backgrounds. Other specs include a wide-angle user-facing camera with CCT flash for more accurate skin tones. The device includes Motorola's turbo power charging with all-day battery life and includes uh, the Moto standard nano coating to protect the components from water damage, though it is not fully waterproof. It'll be available in gray, black, and gold, and it runs Android 7 Nougat. Now, noticeably absent from this announcement is the Droid branding with the Z2 Force for the Verizon model. Specifically, Motorola said the Verizon variant will not include the Droid branding, and it is sticking with a single device name across all carriers. Now, as for the mods, Motorola said customers who purchased the Z2 Force by September 10th will receive a free projector Moto mod. Customers can buy the Z2 Force via any channel, such as the wireless carrier that they're on, electronic stores, or Motorola.com, and then send in the IMEI number to Motorola, which will ship the projector to the customer free of charge. The InstaShare projector released last year is capable of projecting a 70-inch image in video and high definition onto any flat surface. It includes its own battery and kickstand for finding the right angle, and it normally costs $300. On the camera side, Motorola revealed an attachable 360-degree camera. It can capture 360-degree images, 4K video, as well as 150-degree shots from either the front or back. The Moto 360 camera mod uh, comes with its own photo editing software so people can customize the images that fit their particular sharing needs. The camera can also stream live 360-degree video across social media channels such as Facebook and YouTube. And Snap, the Snappable mod goes on sale with the Moto Z2 Force on August 10th and costs $300. Huawei this week said its upcoming flagship handset will be a better device, so they say, than Apple's next iPhone. They say we will have even a more powerful product. Uh, the Mate 10 will have a much longer battery life with a full screen display, quicker charging speeds, better photography capabilities, and other features that will help us compete with Apple. Huawei is expecting to reveal the Mate 10 as soon as September 2nd at a press event scheduled during the IFA trade show in Berlin. At the same time, you said Huawei plans to exit the entry-level market of the, of the smartphone phone sector. We're giving up, they say, on low-end devices because the margin is extremely low and there's not enough profit in it for us. So moving forward, Huawei will focus on mid-range and high-end devices. So his statement there about, you know, the, the, the profit margin is low on low-end devices. And that's why we still see this push for all these really, really high-end devices from all the manufacturers because of the profit margin. Uh, you know, it, it doesn't really cost them a heck of a lot more to build these flagship devices uh, uh, versus these really low end ones. And but the difference is on the retail side, it's hundreds of dollars of extra. So that actually does mean a lot more money for them. So it's kind of an interesting thing they're focusing on and, and targeting the iPhone, of course. And uh, of course, iPhone users are like, well, it doesn't run iOS, so you can't even make the comparison. But on the hardware side, these other manufacturers have really made uh, very stunning devices hardware-wise. And in, in, in many cases, what makes Apple's hardware look kind of uh, dated and really behind the times. Well, that's it's very true. And, you know, when, when you kind of compare like the uh, back to the margin comment, when you compare, you know, selling 10 phones and making $10 each on them or selling one phone and making $100 on it, that's why the high-end market is is a lot more attractive because you don't have to sell as many devices to get uh, the same, to make the same amount of money. And it's, it's one thing if you've got the scale and you've got a product that is selling a lot because whether it's a, a value play and, you know, maybe the margin is slim, but you're selling a lot of it. 
but that's not happening uh, with these devices. They're just they're making a full line from low end to high end, and the high end, uh, you know, by the numbers that they're selling, um, are enough for them to to see the the margin spread that they need in order for it to be profitable. So, um, but then going back to the comment about whether or not you know an Apple buyer is going to get something like this, I mean, it, it that's not what they're going after. They're going after someone who's looking for high end specs on a piece of hardware that is not you know squarely not an Apple device. And uh, so that's what they're that's what they're trying to figure out. So it's um, you know we're going to see a lot of announcements here over the next probably month. Uh, you know we mentioned we've got a number of device announcements happening over the next two months, but really in the next month as we lead up into EFA, we're going to be reporting a lot more on these flagships for the let's say late 2017, but really the 2018 model year. LG Thursday reporting second quarter earnings with its mobile communications company reporting flat income and an operating loss of $117 million. LG blaming the quarterly performance on weaker than expected sales of its flagship smartphone, the G6, and an increase in component costs. LG showed off the G6 at Mobile World Congress in February and the device reached the markets uh, markets across the world in April. It's a premium metal and glass smartphone with that 18 by 9 display and dual cameras. It did say uh, the unit had a 13% increase in sales across North America thanks to the strong performance of its mass-tier handsets such as the K20 and Stylo 3. LG does hope things will get better, and they say the introduction of the new Q-series and the rollout of a new high-end device in the weeks ahead are expected to bolster the company's performance in the second half of the year. The high-end device in question they're talking about is likely the V30, a follow-up to devices uh, last year's V20. LG had a press event scheduled for August 31st during the IFA trade show uh, that we expect to uh, hear the announcement of this new device. And the FCC Friday approved a new high-end Samsung phone that is almost guaranteed to be the company's forthcoming Note 8 flagship phone. The new phone has the model number SMN950. The previous two Note models were the SMN930 and N920. As the company's Note 7 and S8 uh, have, uh, have sported, one hardware model will fully support all U.S. carrier networks, though the software may differ between that and the model that will be sold internationally. The FCC approvals of the document revealed no surprises though the new model appears to support all the same basic features and radio bands as the note 7 plus the new band 66 no mention uh in this fcc approval of band 71 that's the new 600 megahertz band that t-mobile is planning to use for its launch of samsung and lg devices next month though it's possible that the fcc approvals could be amended to uh, add back in band 71 yeah, it almost seems like it's a little too early for a device to be released with 71, right? I mean, it's like, you know, they need a little bit of time to ramp up for that. Perhaps, but, you know, this was uh, obviously T-Mobile is probably pushing this and they're, I'm sure, funding it in different ways to make sure that this this band is built in so that they can take advantage of it. Obviously, there's uh, a lot of advantage, um, you know, and, and upside for T-Mobile to make sure that that happens. So they're going to do whatever they need to to make it happen. In software news, Google Tuesday brought its Trusted Contacts application available for Android since last year over to iOS. Trusted Contacts lets people share the location, uh, their location with others during emergencies. It simplifies that process of adding friends and family as emergency contacts and allows those added to the list to request locations at any time and even works when offline or the phone's battery is dead. Users can proactively share their location if they feel unsafe or become involved in an emergency situation. People added to the Trusted Contacts list will see the phone's activity status to know the phone's owner is okay. The app is free to download and install. 
Google Monday made the Android O preview developer preview four available to developers, and it said it is this is the final preview before Google releases Android O to consumers later this year. The build contains the final user interface system behaviors, latest bug fixes, optimizations, and the final set of APIs. Those that have enrolled their devices in the Android beta program should receive the preview four over the air in the next few days on their Nexus 6Ps, 5Xs, Pixels, Pixel XLs, Pixel Cs, and Nexus players. Google said the final version is expected later this summer. Uh, we still don't know what dessert O will be named after. So that is still hanging out there. Google on Tuesday announcing its Google Maps and Google Search apps will show critical information regarding natural and other disasters that may strike. SOS alerts, as they're called, will appear at the top search results within Maps when people look for information concerning disasters or impacted areas. In Google Search, results will include pertinent news stories, broadcasts, emergency numbers, and relevant websites. Those close to the disaster areas may receive push alerts with that same information. In Google Maps, Google will showcase data concerning the event, phone numbers, and websites, as well as placement on the map and real-time information regarding road closures or changes to mass transit. Google has partnered with agencies, including the Federal Emergency Management Agency and Red Cross, to gain access to that information. Google is bringing SOS alerts to its mobile search and maps application for Android and iOS, with desktop alerts coming soon. And Adobe Tuesday said it will stop updating and distributing the Flash Player in 2020. The web plugin is widely used across the web to power experiences such as video and gaming, but Adobe says new open standards such as HTML5 and WebGL have already begun to replace Flash in web browsers. Adobe is working with partners including Apple, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, and Mozilla to help with the end-of-life process. Adobe will update and patch Flash until the end of life arrives in order to ensure users are protected. It's already encouraging content creators to adopt the new open standards ahead of that change. Well, this can't come soon enough, of course. We've talked about this, you know, years and years ago. Actually, you know, of course, with the announcement of the iPhone originally uh, not including Flash and the, you know, the statement that it will never include Flash was really kind of a a blow uh, to Flash, of course, but uh, a a boon to everybody who hates Flash and how slow it is and how insecure it is and how much of a drag it is on the entire web experience. So, uh, you know, this can't come soon enough because, uh, you know, I don't even install it on my computers anymore. I do use Chrome browser occasionally, which it is built into uh, that that uses Chrome, uh, uses Flash, so I don't have to actually install it on the system and have those updaters and Adobe services. It installs like six or seven services in the background running all the time on your computer, checking for updates and all doing all kinds of who knows what. And I'm just glad that this uh, is going away. Yeah, it's, you know, there's not a lot of love for Flash anymore. And it, uh, interestingly, I hadn't even thought about Flash. I can't even tell you the last time I thought about it. Because to your point, I haven't installed it on a computer in years. I don't update it. And ultimately, it's just, you know, within Chrome. And so Chrome is able to support, you know, the needs of, uh, you know, whatever's out there, whatever um, happens to be thrown at it. But it, it's a, uh, you know, it, it, to your point, it, this can't happen soon enough. So we'll see you flash in the next couple of years. In a move uh, sure to make many users happy, Google this week made Waze available within Android Auto. The new integration means those who prefer Waze to Google Maps can take advantage of Waze in their car's in-dash infotainment center. In order to use Waze, Android users will need to download the latest version of Android Auto and Waze and then connect their phone to their car via USB. Waze is popular due to it providing real-time information about accidents, construction closures, and other events that may impact navigation. It relies on crowdsourced data to provide the most up-to-date information. 
And Google says Waze fans are able to navigate to their favorite destinations saved in Waze, including work and home, receive visual and audio alerts about hazards, check the estimated time of arrival uh, along an alternative route, and of course, help other Waze users by sharing information about accidents and traffic jams. Google said it's working on a new version of Waze that works within Android Auto directly on smartphones. But for now, Waze integration is limited to in-dash access. AT&T Thursday said its DirecTV Now television service now offers more than 100 live local channels. Affiliates of ABC, NBC, Fox, although not CBS, are available in markets including Dallas, Chicago, Los Angeles, New York, Philly, San Francisco, and Washington, D.C. AT&T says it will soon triple the number of live channels compared to when the service launched back in November of 2016. Nationwide, DirecTV Now subscribers have access to up to 120 channels with more than 25,000 on-demand titles as well as premium channels. The service starts at $35 a month and goes up to $70 a month depending on the package. AT&T offers a $25 monthly discount to its mobile customers who can stream DirecTV Now television to their mobile devices without impacting their monthly data limits. And Google is is eliminating instant search, a feature generating search results in real time as people typed their search queries. The feature was introduced in order to save time, but the majority of searches are now performed on mobile devices, and the tool doesn't make sense to use in that environment. According to Google, we launched Google Instant back in 2010 with the goal of to provide users with information as they needed as quickly as possible, even as they typed their searches into desktop devices. But since then, many of our searches now happen on mobile, a different input and interaction with screen constraints on it. So with that in mind, we've decided to remove Google Instant so we can focus on making search even faster and more fluid on all devices. Google will continue to offer search suggestions in the search box as people tap out their queries, but the process of the instantly uh, provided results on the screen will not occur anymore. I'm glad because that feature always caused more trouble than it was worth on the desktop. I'd start typing and then it would rebuild the list and then it wouldn't actually update the search after certain words because I think it was busy thinking about the search as the last few characters you were typing. So uh, that this, this, that feature was always annoying to me. Yeah, I, I never found it to be uh, you know overly useful. But the other part of it is you know a lot of my searching now is as they point out on the desktop or on the mobile side. Um, you know, had say probably well over half of my searches occur just opening up Safari and typing the the query into the search bar. And then going from there, I don't even go to Google because why would you? I mean, that's just kind of not how really I use a browser anymore. Right. And that's what I do primarily. But occasionally, you know, you're at the then you then get to the Google screen and I want to change my search query and then it starts goofing up because of this instant search. So I'm glad this is gone. Yeah. So anyway, it uh, obviously a smart move on their part, I think, for the way that we're using our devices today. And in the competitive world of streaming music and video, Google planning to consolidate its music offering and ad free video service. So starting this week, Google Play Music is available to a single person for $10 and $15 per month. Uh, And YouTube Red uh, allows people to enjoy ad-free YouTube experiences for $10 a month. That's all happening today. Purchasing YouTube Red, however, gives people access to Google Play Music at no charge. Google also offers YouTube Music and YouTube TV, which are separate separate services for music videos and live TV. But moving forward, Google Play Music and YouTube Red will be offered together. So the important thing is combining Red and Google Play Music and having one offering, they say. Uh, no more details about what the merge service may look like, but he did. they did say that Google will give customers plenty of warning. And they said music is very limited to Google and we're evaluating how to bring it together with our, our music offerings to deliver the best possible product for all users. 
uh, music partners and artists. Nothing will change for users, uh, and they'll provide, like I said, that notice for people as far as when this change is going to take place. YouTube TV is the newest of all these media services and is only available in 15 markets across the country. That's $35 per month and will continue to stand on its own. Yeah, it's kind of like it needs some cross promotion here because, you know, I, I, for me, for example, like I have interest in neither of these services. But if you say, oh, it's bundled them together, well, okay, maybe there's, you know, the interest level goes up. Uh, and of course, the other big thing is that, you know, there's so many, uh, you know, pirated music uploaded to YouTube. You can search for any song you want to hear and find, you know, some pirated version on YouTube. And I, and I know that's becoming a major issue and it's, uh, uh, you know, Google's trying to fight off a lot of uh, copyright infringement and, and, and I don't know if they're doing a good job at it or if they're, they don't care or what the situation is, but that's definitely something that's uh, tying into this, uh, into this decision. Yeah, call it my age or call it just my, my lack of uh, time focusing on this, but um, I've realized over the last, I don't know, probably year, year and a half that the vast majority of music, the way that people are listening to music, especially in the younger generation, is happening through YouTube. And they're just going and searching for the song and listening to it on there. And why would you buy a song when you can just listen to it over and over on YouTube? There's, you know, you, you, it's not as convenient as, you know, obviously having a playlist. But at the same time, when depending on what you're doing, when your phone is in your hand all the time. You can just easily do a search for it and, and have the exact song that you want on demand and listen to that song right then and there. So um, it's a to your point, it's an interesting issue where especially when it's uh, not a song that's been, uh, you know, there's, there's no consent for it to be on YouTube and it's been pirated and put on there by somebody else. And, you know, it maybe gets taken down at some point, but then another version pops up and it's, uh, you know, it, it's unfortunate. But um, it's it's a process that they're going to have to uh, to deal with there. So um, some new stuff there from YouTube on the music and video streaming service side. Finally, today, questions and comments. Uh, we've got a question from John. He says, guys, love the show. Longtime listener. Uh, what are your thoughts on third party backups um, with Google's one or Google Photos and Microsoft's OneDrive. Specifically, I love that the new Apple Photos format is out there, but when I back up those new formatted photos to OneDrive, they're just a blank photo. I emailed OneDrive and they are telling me to contact Apple. I finally just gave up, but it's some, ha, is it something that you guys have heard about uh, and will this get resolved? How long will that take? Uh, thanks for the great show, John. So, um, there's a new file format that's being used. Let's just clarify that with Apple's iOS 11. And um, I think it's it's a, Joey, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's a, it's a better quality photo that they're now uh, allowing the camera to take and to store on the device. Yeah, it's it's the new HVHEVIC. I you know I said this wrong, but I can't remember now what the actual uh, letters are. And it's a, it's a better compression ratio is basically what it is. So it's a, it's a new compression format. You know, JPEG is a compressed image format, and that's what it you know iOS ten and previous used. Uh, you can turn that option off if you want right now uh, for having these other photo backup services uh, pull up your normal photos and have them viewable. The reason they're blank, they're showing blank in these other apps is they they cannot read that new compressed file format. They just don't know what it is yet. They don't have the capability to, and they may not have licensed it yet, and they may never license those file formats. I feel like they'll have to, but they may not. They may just drop the photo backup service altogether instead of paying the licensing fees for uh, for this compression because it's not an open source compression. And uh, that's really the gist of it. So the video and the photos now use this new uh, format. And then 
Uh, and if you uh, are into videos at all, um, you know, the previous version is the H264, and this newer version is what they call the H265. So that's what the, uh, you know, the video formats are uh, under. So uh, unfortunately, uh, you'll have to wait for this one to get resolved, and it, it may not get resolved on different apps. And I was going to say, certain services are almost guaranteed to, to update, and what, if it's, whether it's licensing or whatever it is, in order to do this. Again, the iPhone, the number one camera in the world. Uh, the, one of the top reasons, the primary reasons people use backup services is for backing up their photos. So uh, there's going to be one of two things. They're, they're either going to figure out a way to create a viewer that can, you know, to at least show these, um, you know, appropriately, or they're, they're going to, to your point, have some sort of full licensing requirement, to, uh, you know, uh, licensing to, in order to make this stuff work, because it's not going to fly for, for none of these services to work. And it is interesting, though, isn't it, that, that, that they are not working right now, so it's going to be something that's going to have to be resolved. Um, and a very interesting comment, and appreciate you bringing it up, John, because it's not something that I had heard about or even thought about up until this point, that, you know, one of the primary reasons I have Dropbox is for this, and if that's not going to work, then I've got to figure this out. Absolutely. But the thing is, it's probably still putting the photos into Dropbox just in the format that Dropbox, you can't actually see the images. They're probably the files are probably there and being backed up. Most likely I'm not I can't confirm that I don't have iOS 11, but they're probably there and being backed up. But you just can't view them and do anything with them. So it's still probably an appropriate backup solution. Uh, but of course it's not going to do you that much good right now unless you have a Mac or a, or a Windows program that can actually read that file format for it. But, you know, in the meantime, you may want to consider turning off the new, uh, the new, uh, image format in the settings of your, your camera. Um, that's also an option. Of course, the new file formats are, like you said, higher quality and smaller in size and provide a lot more, uh, flexibility and options as far as the, you know, like the, the live photos and, and other cool stuff that they're integrating in there. But, but it will take some time for mainstream support. And of course, even support kind of on the Android side, because when you send a photo to uh, a friend of yours, if they have an Android phone, they won't be able to read the native format. So like if you uh, SMS it or iMessage it to a non iPhone user, it'll actually uh, convert it to a JPEG and then send it as well. So, and that's obviously a, you know, a consideration, you know, that they're talking about as, as much as Apple wants you to stay within their ecosystem, you know, they're, they fully understand that, you know, not everybody is using an iOS device. And so there's, there's going to have to be consideration to, uh, to how that all, all, all the rest of this works. So, uh, but uh, again, very interesting uh, that it, this is happening at this point. And so John, thanks again very much for bringing it up. Well, if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can send them in to questions at thecellphonejunkie.com, or you can give us a call and leave a voicemail at 650-999-0524, and we'll get whatever you have to say on a future show. Joey, thank you very much, as always, for your time. We'll talk to you later. Thanks for listening. For more information about the stories you've just heard, visit us at thecellphonejunkie.com.